welcome to the second episode of Clear Blue Skies. This is the first episode that we're really gonna get into things at a very substantial level. We've been discussing this paper in the first week of my class and I thought it was super interesting. It's called Touching Space, Ambedkar on the Spatial Features of Untouchability. But I think there's so much to be said both about the spatial and the temporal features of untouchability or really cast. This paper is uh, unique in the sense of the other texts that we'll be going through in this podcast because it puts Gandhi and Ambedkar in conflict and that's not really a place of argumentation that I really want to spend much time focusing on just because everyone does it. If you look up Ambedkar in most academic journals, the majority of the academic scholarship seems to be about positing Gandhi and Ambedkar against one another when honestly... Gandhi's, I mean, Ambedkar's conflicts with Gandhi are not even the most fascinating part of his life or his politics. The spaces that are discussed in this paper are namely cities and villages, and they each have their own staunch defender and champion. Gandhi puts villages up ahead of cities because he sees cities as sites of corruption because he's an awful old boar. And he sees villages as these perfect agrarian little hamlets where, you know, Indians could sort of idyllically take over their take over control of their economy from the British and he wanted this particular kind of model to to be India. He didn't see a viable future with industrialization, modernization, and urbanization. In contrast, Ambedkar saw cities as sites of emancipation. And he said that the village is a cesspool, a sink of localism, a den of ignorance, narrow-mindedness, caste, and communalism. I have no conception of villages. I grew up in Delhi. Even my hometown is exactly as I said, a town. So I have no real idea of the rural beyond things I've seen in TV. But you know, the funny thing is I've heard secondhand accounts of village life. And it's always from the, well, classmates of mine from when I was in school talking about how they're going to go and like spend summer in their family village or like at the village. And then even when I went to Canada and I was meeting kids from the diaspora, I heard this term, which I've honest to God never heard before in my life, which was when they talked about going back home to India and finally seeing their ancestral village. Now, first of all, the use of the word ancestral in, you know, 2017, 2019, not back in, I don't know, Pride and Prejudice times, that itself was enough to throw me. It seemed so anachronistic, so out of place. Ultimately, when I was reading this paper, as well as uh, Untouchables, the Children of India's Ghetto, which is another uh, text by Ambedkar, where this whole idea of, you know, the localism and how the villages are cesspools of caste, 
that's when it really struck me that that had to be true because every time you talk to an upper caste person about caste the first thing out of their mouths would be well that only happens in villages and at the same time it is only upper caste people whether who have both the fantasy as well as the reality of like ancestral land right like this ancestral village so on one hand they're able to have this sentimental a nostalgic sort of memory space but also identify that this is a place where caste is still real i mean this is completely disregarding their idea that caste is something of the past that also their privilege allows them to historicize what is a reality for lower caste and dalit people of course it can't be as simple as cities good villages bad i wanted a different perspective and a more nuanced modern one So I asked my friend Sumit Semos to come on the show and give me his thoughts about this whole thorny complicated issue and as always he delivered. Who is Sumit Semos? I think it's important to foreground this by saying that Sumit is hyper talented. He's a rapper, an academic, an activist. He's a really phenomenal thinker. And this is honestly the year of Sumit Semos. He's got a book coming out that's being published by a Dalit owned publishing house called Panthers Pop Publications and he's on his way to Oxford uh later on this year for a master's in modern South Asian studies if I'm not mistaken. Honestly at this point I feel like the question is more who hasn't heard of Sumit Semos Kaliyon mein kheton mein photo mein stage mein dalitton ki basti mein jai bin to basti hai apne sare khul ke naache jab singa the beat pe basti hai kya re setting up khala boys ah jai bin jai bin jai bin jai bin I was reading the whole paper and I was like, yes, I completely agree with Ambedkar. But I was like, I really want to ask Sumit because I feel like he's yes. had such a different experience in cities. Yes, you know, see that in the village there's antagonism, in the city there's isolation, right? In the village you have to live as a caste group, so the experience is always collective. Like, of course, I always posted about like the hills and mountains and rivers and all of that. That is so beautiful. But then the other facet of it. is that there is a collective caste stigmatized experience that also we have to carry so it comes with the cost right in the village you have the community the dalit community even now i feel dalit community largely exists in villages the paradox of dalit community in indian villages is that on one side it makes you a community because of caste because of that vulnerability but on the other side it is with that community you are surviving so here evening time let's say every sunday after church there is some sort of a feast okay we have feast we have gatherings people dance right next day somebody dies okay or some people face some sort of a discrimination in some office or something happen so it's always this mixture of emotions that keeps going but in the city let's say for example i'm living in delhi you know i'm sitting in you know sitting inside jnu campus nobody gives a shit about like what caste is what is your caste and all that but again i'm isolated this idea of community does not exist in the city among dalits and and that's a very sad thing so when i talk about community you know community i'm talking about in a very large sense as students like i might talk to you once in 2 3 weeks you know you might talk to me one to two three weeks or when we in college we kind of help each other we kind of support each other that's a different thing right but community in the larger sense as in participation of everyday life yeah right let's say your rituals yeah. your weddings you know if something happens to you people will come together 
you know yeah. on the street like see the yeah. farmers are community farmers are a community the beauty the, you know the beauty in their community is that they live through that collective experiences of yeah. facing vulnerabilities they also come to protest together as a community but students yeah. mostly they come together to do politics oh, we formed babsa yeah. to do student politics we yeah. were not like oh having chai and you know celebrating birthdays of each other hanging out i feel like upper caste groups do that i mean also they have the leisure and like the money and they'll have the space i can yeah. imagine for someone place like delhi and if you're anyway dalit and you're anyway like short on resources you don't know people the city is unfriendly This reminds me of a caption in an Instagram post by a Dalit artist and thinker that I really admire. When he first posted it, I think more than a year ago, I saved it just because both the caption and the post which was an excerpt from a book that he's currently writing and that I really really hope to read someday. Well, honestly, it chilled me and it moved me. when i was doing this reading about touching space it just brought it back in full force so i thought i'll read out not the excerpt but the caption he says that the invisibilized cities don't make it to architecture theory they rather have their presence felt as a specter of the city's insecurities we can only cherish cities we can't see not the ones we choose not to see every indian city at its core breeds a non city By mere logic, the city can never outgrow the non-city as all of its existence is nothing but an open act of burglary. Yet, the hardest pill to swallow is that all it steals from the non-city are memories. Which is of course terrifyingly sad, but that's not the end of it. And he goes on to say that memories are never allowed to stay long enough to become histories. The non-city is rather associated with numbers in research papers which decorate the desks of the city dwellers. After all, numbers ensure effective control while memories inspire anarchy. Even this Dalit political consciousness, it's coming to us post just hardly 4-5 years. And as Dalits, we're also coming from different parts of the country. You know, you're coming from Delhi, I'm coming from Orissa. We come from different cultural, you know, linguistic backgrounds. Then there is rural-urban divide. Somebody is, you know, uh, part of the global popular culture and somebody is like watching Rajnikanth and, you know, some Bollywood movies. And then there are class factors. Yeah. All of this together... makes it very difficult okay first of all you have to have a political consciousness of being a dalit that you are associated with other people because you are untouchable but then again these variables also play important role in socializing so our activities just get limited to this politics that is where we need to imagine ways where we ourselves despite all of these differences create a community not just for our political rights not just for protection or support system but just to build friendships As I said, I grew up in Delhi and I'll spare you my sob story of always feeling out of place, of never really belonging. Suffice it to say that this was just even being a Christian in India. I didn't even realize that what I'd experienced growing up was marginalization. I just figured that that was life. I'm like super confused whether I can actually say that I'm Dalit like that. Okay. <laughs> I don't know like I still like oh my god I don't know if I can say it or not or what I mean I know that you've written about this a lot but I still feel like okay like I haven't like experienced marginalizing like you know that kind of like bad things 
Okay, I'll, I'll intervene you and then you say, okay? Like, yes. I just wanted to make... Because for me, I see Dalit identity not just in terms of the wretched village, brutal realities, right? Because that's not what all of us are facing. Even me, I don't face that, right? Of course, you might get good education, you might speak English, you might be protected from violence. But are you part of the larger social or the larger public at the end of the day? In terms of history, in terms of your memory, in terms of culture, in terms of everyday life, can you just go and enter any, you know, Ahuja or Juneja or, you know, some... Punjabi Khatri's house in Delhi and just be like, oh, chill, let's party. No, you cannot do that because you're different. And that is something you have to always carry, right? You you keep carrying that. Despite you not being born into that kind of a crude, brutal caste reality of being a Dalit, you still have to face that consequence. So that is where your Dalit identity becomes experientially relevant. You're facing consequences of something that you have no control over. Even in politics, let's say you're not in Canada, you're in India, and then you have to get into Stephens. And then you see that, let's say on your certificate, you have OBC and you don't have SC. And then you see that there are some Dalit Christians who are fighting for SC status. Politically, where do you stand? You stand with them, right? Or let's say there are some Dalits who are fighting for like, okay, Prevention of Atrocities Act also should be for Christians. Because tomorrow, you never know when we will be attacked. And mostly it's Dalit Christians who are going to be attacked. So yes, I want that. So you stand there. Historically, there is a crisis. Culturally, you're not able to form a bond with anybody else. You don't have a social life with others. And your rights are based on your Dalit identity end of the day. This is the isolation that defines Dalit experiences, particularly in the city. In a larger sense, this is what primarily defines untouchability. This carries over to anti-caste politics or rather their position in the political landscape of India. It is crucial to recognize that this experience of isolation is not an accident or just an inherent part of being a Dalit that was formed in a vacuum. It is forged and fostered by the powers that be. That's why Sumit believes that intentional community and radical friendship are so crucial. Anti-caste politics are separate from right-wing politics as well as from left liberal politics. The culture as well as the counterculture have no place for the planes of anti-caste politics beyond tokenizing, appropriating or most often invisibilizing. It ties up perfectly with, with one of my favorite Ambedkar quotes, which is In my judgment, it is useless to make a distinction between the secular Brahmins and the priestly Brahmins. Both are kith and kin. They are two arms of the same body and one bound to fight for the existence of the other. Anti-caste politics, Dalit politics stand apart from this binary, which really is the same thing with different masks. Right now, even as the fire of the farmers' protests is raging not only across India but all over the world, there is a parallel protest, as some of the major publications who have deigned to cover it call it, not getting half as much as the attention of the farmers. On social media, particularly in diasporic circles, there's a lot of usage of these very hashtags compelling people to stand with the farmers. People are talking a lot about their heritage and their lands and what the farmers' resistance means to them. Let me make it clear before I go any further that I do support the farmers protest but with any talk or question of land particularly in the context of caste or really in India it's important to ask who does the land belong to the one who owns it on paper or the one who works on it as it happens Punjab which is the state where the majority of the farmers who are protesting come from it's one of India's wealthiest states 
Punjab's prosperity is considered the triumph of the Green Revolution. However, large parts of its agricultural land are owned by a single dominant caste group, i.e. the Jats. They make up 25% of Punjab's population. In sharp contrast, the Dalits of Punjab make up 32% of the state's population. This is the largest concentration of Dalits anywhere in the country, even above the national average. But despite this, they only own about 2.2%. 3 to 3.5% of as it happens most of the dalits in punjab are agricultural laborers their wage labor their wage labor is determined by the dominant caste farmers whose lands they work on by local practice and traditional custom they are not allowed to own land but despite land reforms that have given them rights to certain percentages of this land there are still institutionalized systems of corruption that ensure that this doesn't often become possible and this is apparent in the disparity in the statistics of course it's not just disenfranchisement that these dalit agricultural laborers have to undergo the sheer violence exclusion and abasement upon their bodies by the land owning caste are immense and systemic If you look up the keywords farmers protests dalits the first couple of hits are literally just a few articles that i got all of this information from and the rest are stories of caste violence going back years the magnitude and depth of the complicity and collusion between the state instruments and caste society is shocking this is the toxic combination that fosters sets up and encourages an environment of violence and casteism the participation of dalits of dalit workers of dalit agricultural laborers in the farmers protests is a complicated issue that i really don't fully understand myself but it was while uh, learning and reading about punjab and issues of land redistributions and I was again struck with the story of one of my heroes comrade Bant Singh. He's a Dalit Sikh singer and agricultural labor activist from Punjab whose music and organizing they truly embody what Baba Saheb once said that it is better to live one day like a lion than 10000 as a goat. <laughs> the brutality and violence that has been visited upon Bhant Singh and his family by upper caste they tried their vile sadistic ways of trying to break his spirit but Bhant Singh is a dalit icon elevated not by the tragedies wrecked upon him but because of his moral clarity sheer daring and well established concrete politics media content about Bhant Singh most of it made by upper caste people always kind of has this tone of sheer disbelief at his courage and determination at the fact that he started singing his songs even during his hospital visit after being brutally attacked i think that highlighting dalit bahujan resilience in the face of oppression is the most common way that upper caste content creators try to show their anti caste perspective by hyper focusing on narratives of exceptionalism they fail to get the full picture and by not understanding the past they often ask the wrong questions of course pant singh is a lion among men a true visionary and a genuinely radical artist but when around 15 organizations and countless fellow dalits across punjab rose up in resistance in sheer solidarity in mass defiance of the message that the upper caste thugs who attacked him tried to send why wouldn't he sing especially in the hospital <laughs> Oh, na di ba, thar di ra ne ka re ne, pe pauch ke tak di tha. 
Honestly, I've been working on this episode for almost a month. It would have had a very different trajectory if not for current events. I was going to talk more about cast temporal features, not just the spatial ones. I would have gone back and I talked about memories and childhood and nostalgia. If suppose the diversity of Dalit experiences is what is required, I would have talked about how I've never related to upper caste childhoods and now that I'm I guess self-actualized as a Dalit, I'm never going to relate to upper caste people's futures as well. But of course, both of these pale in the face of the present. Nodeep Kaur has been in police custody since the 12th of January. She's a Dalit labor rights activist deemed so dangerous to the current regime that no one knew where she was being detained in the initial time of her arrest. She wasn't allowed visitors and several of her bail pleas were rejected. She's 23, two years older than me. She's being declared a terrorist for organizing Dalit workers and getting people to join the protests. Her sister Rajveer is also just as brave, brilliant and charismatic. She has been leading the charge to get Nodeep released. I can't even begin to imagine the agony she must be going through right now. I also have a sister. Every time I see Rajveer on the news speaking so calm, so direct, so confident, I'm blown away. Apart from the regular circus of torture porn art and idiotic takes, social media has, oddly enough, not shied away from mentioning Nodeep's Dalit identity. However, I do find it telling that most people, and let's be real, I'm talking about upper caste people here, a much bigger understanding. They don't seem to have a deeper understanding of Nudeep's politics beyond identity politics. Just describing her as a Dalit labor activist doesn't fully reflect why the government is coming down so hard on her. There's this video of Nudeep that's been doing the rounds where, where she effortlessly weaves in the capitalist foundations of the farm bills, of the green revolution, and names names about how the Ambani's wealth has grown exponentially during the lockdowns. Nudeep Kaur is dangerous to the regime because she's young, magnetic, and a true grassroots leader with the authenticity, conviction, and the grounded knowledge of how things work. She's both on her way as well as already a leader to reckon with. Nodeep Kaur is alive and she's history in the making. Ambedkar wrote in Small Holdings that in an economic system employing armies of workers and mass-producing goods en masse at regular intervals, someone must make the rules so that workers will work and the wheels of industry run on. If the state does not do it, the private employer will. In other words, what is called liberty from the control of the state is another name for the dictatorship of the private employer. So yeah, basically, there's nothing more Ambedkarite than good old-fashioned socialism. As it happens, Dalit workers' unions have been part of the protests since their inception. Agricultural labourers as well as factory workers and other labourers have all joined too. Regardless of whether and how badly the farm laws also affect Dalits, it is crucial to appreciate that those who are protesting are also demanding land redistribution and genuine emancipation. There's this idea of creating spectacle out of some, okay? There's always this idea of euphoria. When I started activism or I, I have seen so many Dalit students who started activism in 2015, 16, post-Rohit or before Rohit, we're still at it because we know that that was not euphoria. It was conviction that drove us to do this kind of politics. And maybe even after six, seven years, when all of this, you know, popularity and fame and all of this public support fades out, even then we would be doing it, right? For them, it's not exactly. like that. It is euphoria. It's not conviction. Another thing is about this spectacle. They're not losing anything. Police coming and detaining you for like two hours, three hours. I don't call it like losing something. Or let's say giving some tear gas and all for that moment. It's not, it's not a big deal. Of course, there are few people, few activists and academicians who are arrested. That's completely different. But most of these people do not have to face any consequences, right? So they have yeah. so much to gain. They want to enact something. 
right yeah. they want to enact like they want to create a spectacle by giving a rose or maybe holding a fancy placard that might have nothing to do with them it's just for the moment they came took a photo and then went back to their home See, the first half of this episode was about the city, and arguably the second part is about the village. There are these common threads of separation, isolation, and antagonism that seem to encapsulate these facets of the Dalit experience. This regime always attempts to silence people who work on the ground, who challenge Brahminical hegemony, and who organize, who demand justice. This regime goes after those who embody genuinely radical politics, who work for emancipation, not in an abstract sense, but for material change, dignity, and self-respect. The refrain of one of Comrade Bunt Singh's songs translated goes like this: "I'm here with the people's voice. We've seen your misdeeds everywhere. Our destination is the street where martyrs dwell." Despite the existence of heroes, of martyrs, of shaheeds, past for Dalits is not a safe place. But neither is the present reality. The only real avenue for change, for a better quality of life, for liberation, it's in the future. And I think that's what Baba Sahab meant, really, by the city is a site for emancipation. Th- that's futuristic, at least for me.